0: God. I was thinking as we were singing this second of these three songs, we find all that we need in Jesus. In some ways, it goes along with the subject we've been getting a lot of questions on. And it seems like the more we talk on it, some subjects, the more you talk on them, you start to wear the subject out. Not that the Bible could ever be worn out, but you start to wear the subject out. And you can tell it's time for a new subject, but it seems like every time we talk on this, I get an avalanche of questions. I'm starting to... Get backed up on the questions. We've had several here in the assembly that have sent me questions. If you sent me a question, please forgive me if I don't answer it in a timely way here on a Wednesday night if we're having a and a Because we've been getting so many, I'm trying to get caught up. I've got a list of them in my notebook trying to get caught up on some of the questions that we've had. And It's encouraging to know that there's that kind of inspiration behind a subject. There's always that kind of inspiration when you're talking about the Word of God. It's not hard to get inspired when you're talking about God's Word. At least it shouldn't be hard to get inspired. There's something wrong if we don't feel inspired talking about God's Word. That's what we talked about in our youth meeting, God's Word. And I didn't really think about it, Brother Moore, until this weekend. I felt like God just let us know we're on the right track. We had such a powerful weekend, the whole weekend long. Precious. I wonder if God just isn't saying, you're right in the track I want you to be on, you know. It didn't register to me when we were talking on what we were going to talk to the youth about, Rick, that that was going to be the same subject that, in a way, has been driving us in some of these Wednesday nights as well. The power of the Word of God. Efficacy. We don't use that word very often, but that means productivity in a powerful way that the Word of God has. And I've got a number of questions. As I said, I'm trying to get caught up on some of the questions. So if you asked me one here in the last few days, forgive me, I haven't gotten to those just yet. I will get to them. I've been getting a lot of questions from outside of our assembly, though, which I appreciate. When you're talking on a subject that has the kind of controversial nature that this does, you're bound to get questions that are confrontational. But I haven't had a single confrontational question. Every question I've been getting from other ministers and things have been, can you talk more on this part of it, or can you talk about that? And one of the things that I've been getting a lot of questions on was the nature of, this is going to tie right into what we've been talking about. Maybe you have some questions on it. As always, when we're having this kind of service, I want you to feel free to ask questions. If I'm on a line of thought or not, I want you to feel free to ask questions. they got some questions about the nature of covenants and what does it take to be in the new covenant. Because I have said a couple of times, and I believe this very strongly, that when you're in a covenant relationship with God, that covenant relationship is what will give you the hope of a resurrection. I don't think God starts relationships with people with the purpose of them not continuing. Just think about how simple this is. Do you think God would start a relationship if he thought the relationship? Thought isn't even a good word for God. Do you think God would start a relationship if he knew the relationship was not going to be able to continue? If God knew that a week from now, somebody was getting a car accident, He knew that that is coming, and they're saved, and they don't have any chance to get filled with the Holy Spirit between now and then, do you think He would have started that relationship without the intention of it continuing? that he drew their heart to him and they gave their life to him and said, Lord, I submit to you. That's really what conversion is about, whether you realize it or not. Faith and repentance are the two key components of conversion, but it's all about submission. It's about saying, Lord, I realize what I've been doing up to this time is wrong and I want to get right with you. And in getting right with you, I've got a first, of course, like Hebrews 11, we talked about that a few weeks ago, that you have to first believe that he is and that he's a reward to them, the diligent rewarder, Of them that diligently seek after him. So you gotta believe that he is. It doesn't do any good to repent to someone you don't believe in. How foolish would that be? If you didn't even believe the person you were repenting to existed, why would you be repenting? So you have to actually believe in who you're talking to. I believe this being is real. And I said when we started talking about that, it's not just about believing in His reality when you say you believe that He is. You have to insert a couple words after that phrase. I know I probably said this already, so forgive me for being redundant. But you don't just believe that He is in terms of that He exists. you got to believe that He is who He says He is. It's not just that He exists. He's telling you a lot of things about Himself when He introduces Himself to you. He's telling you He's the one true Almighty God above all other gods. He's telling you that he's holy. He's telling you that he's just. He's telling you that he's merciful and righteous. And you could come up with a long list of qualities to describe God and the character and characteristics of God. What he reveals to you, he wants you to believe. If he says, I'm holy, he wants you to believe he's holy. If he says, I never lie, that's a pretty important starting point, wouldn't you say? Before you're going to believe anything else he says, you've got to believe that. If he says, I never lie. And he does say that. He said it several times. I think I said one of these Wednesday nights, I had somebody, there's a reason I'm not going to get into because it gets pretty complicated and pretty sensitive area of doctrine. But I had some individual, Brother Moore, that would not stop arguing with me about how God can lie. And it was a very seriously conservative minister. He had to come up with that idea because of some other beliefs he had about a certain doctrine I'm not going to wait into tonight. (laughs) When I boxed him in a corner on a certain belief he had, and he said, well, God can lie if he wants to. And I said, he can? He goes, God can do anything he wants. Well, yes, anything he wants. But God would never want to lie. It's not in his character. So I'm thankful that we have a God that cannot lie. It's not just that he chooses not to lie, but his character controls that potential where you know he's not going to lie. So if God is offering you a relationship, I want you to think just how simple this is. If God's offering you a relationship, knowing that you can't complete all the pieces of it in this life, He'd have to be deceiving you to be offering you that if he's not going to let you complete it somewhere. Isn't that simple? So if through conversion you're being offered an opportunity to be in a relationship with God and you're not able to complete the work of that in terms of going on to perfection, that's the final stage, but even going through the process of Holy Spirit baptism and the other things that you need to do to finish that race, clearly if he's offering you a relationship, he's not deceiving you. He intends you to have that relationship. And it will be completed, whether in this life or the next life, if you go on in what needs to be completed. But not everything gets completed in this life. We have had people who have completed everything in this life. When I say we have had people, I'm not pointing to any of them and saying, here's somebody lately. I'm talking about in history. There are ones who have done it. A lot of Christians believe Jesus is the only one that's done it. They think He's the only one who truly went on to what we think of as complete perfection. But we know there are others that did it. There'd be no point in Paul making the statements he made. He made statements about this as much or more than any other writer in the Bible, but that's not a surprise. He wrote quite a bit more of the New Testament in terms of letters to people. But he made a number of statements about going on to perfection. It's the same point. God would not tell us to go on to perfection if he did not think that ever was going to be possible for anyone to go on to perfection. And by the way, he didn't say, I'll take you on to perfection. He will. He didn't say, I'll make you perfect without any of your involvement. Hebrews 6.1 says, let us therefore go on to perfection. Mm-hmm. That's Hebrews 6. You go back two and three chapters, Hebrews 3 and 4, and it's talking about that rest. Let us enter into our rest. We've got to enter into our rest. God doesn't put us to rest. It'd be nice if he did. There's days that I wish, and sometimes I lose my patience. I might even lose my temper sometimes. And I think, Lord, I wish you just, and I don't mean this literally, all right? Lord, I wish you just put me to sleep. Put me to sleep like you put Adam to sleep and took a chunk of his genetics and made Eve. But instead of doing that, put me to sleep and take this old nature out and let me wake up without it. Wouldn't that be nice if it worked that way? But that is not what the Bible describes. The Bible describes a process. There's nowhere in the Bible that describes somebody just being perfected as the resurrection. It's a process either before or after the resurrection that perfects you. Some of those scriptures you sent to me, Jim, wonderful scriptures. We need to get into those for sure. We can do it if I can get some of these other questions answered. Mm -hmm. But what does it take to enter into a covenant relationship with God are some of the questions I was getting. How does that relate to the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant? And when was the New Covenant established? Now, that's a touchy issue because there are elements that need to be added to the New Covenant to make it fully operative. But there is a difference between building something and then putting the fuel in it and then turning it on. Mm -hmm. The fact that it hasn't been turned on doesn't mean the thing is not there. Mm -hmm. Just follow me for a moment because this isn't usually how I word this. But if you think about what I'm saying, you'll see why I'm saying it this way. There was a church in the upper room on the day of Pentecost before the Spirit was outpoured, but it wasn't a functioning church yet. It was a church that hadn't had the engine turned on yet. Jesus built it, and there was around 120 people in that upper room, and Jesus constituted that church. He put it together. All the pieces were there. The mechanism was all there. The engine was all there. I think the fuel that he was going to light was there. Here's the fuel. All that truth he had been pouring into them. Three and a half years of mentoring those men and those others that were in that upper room. I don't think there were just a bunch of random people wandered into the upper room at the last minute. You know who was there. There had to have been all of the remaining apostles. And we know there was 12 then because right as they got started going into that process, they replaced Judas. So they had 12 apostles again. And then you know the women were there. There were a number of women that were following Jesus. So we know their names. I am certain they were there. They were the first ones that saw him after his resurrection. You think they'd have missed being in the upper room? So I think the ladies were there. You can get pretty close to 20 just figuring out the apostles and the ladies. And then we've got about 100 more that we don't know the names of all those people. But they had to have been people that came in under Jesus' ministry at some point and were faithful to the end. They weren't part of the 12, but they were part of some of those other groups. You know, several times he sent out 70, didn't he? He sent out the 12, and then sometimes he sent out the 70. I wonder if any of the 70 left or if all those 70 were still there in the upper room. Maybe they were. Maybe all the 70 stayed true. The other choice of the apostle that would replace. That's right. We know there were all the pieces and parts, and I think everybody in that upper room had had the Word of God poured into them over those several years prior to that. They just needed the engine turned on, and it took the Holy Spirit like plugging into a socket. The engine was all there. I've bought tools and other things that required be plugged in. Some of them required the battery to be charged, but I'd like to get to the place where I don't have to keep getting my battery and, you know, like this example Dylan used in his children's church class. He was so good. I'd like to get to the point where I don't have to keep taking the battery off of my drill or whatever it is. I've been using a nail gun lately that's a battery driven nail gun. Works great for battery, but if you're driving a lot of nails. You're going to need to recharge it once in a while. I'd like to get to the point where I don't have a battery anymore, where I don't have to take the battery off, plug it in, but it's plugged into the source and never comes out of the source. There's more power, you know, that way. There's more power right from the line than there is in a battery. And that's what I'd like. I'd like to get to that place. That's what the Holy Spirit gives us. It gives us a greater source of power. It gives us a greater source. I've told you lately, I've been using these two words for the two main things the Holy Spirit gives us is insight and empowerment. Those are the two key things the Holy Spirit gives us. Insight can be a lot of things. Understanding, knowledge, empowerment is that strengthening, that power, whether it's recharging or giving you strength and grace to go through, whatever it might be. Those things, though, are not the foundational things that create a covenant relationship. They're additives to the covenant so you can live according to the requirements of the covenant. There's a difference between entering into a covenant and then living according to the requirements of the covenant. You've got to have certain prerequisites to enter into a covenant relationship. But if you're going to stay and grow, that's the key word. If you're going to grow in that relationship, you're going to have to have some other things you didn't have to begin with. To get into a covenant relationship, you need faith and repentance. And one of the things I might talk about a little bit tonight that I got some questions on related to the covenant is the blood. That's a critical component of covenantal relationship. Then the Spirit, in terms of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, as I've said all throughout, the Spirit is a part of everything. The Spirit anoints the Word. The Spirit is always involved in whatever God's doing. So no matter what you'd want to say about what's going on, what stage you're at in your Christian growth, the Spirit is always a part of it. It's the Spirit that got your attention, that caused you to look up towards heaven and say, God, I believe, and I'm sorry for what I did. That was the Spirit that did that. You weren't baptized in the Spirit, but you were touched by the Spirit. If God touches you, what is the instrument He uses to touch you with? His Spirit. Even when it's His Word that is touching you, His Word, forgive me for being poetic, but the edge of the sword of the Word of God is wetted, W-H-E-T, by the Spirit. It's made sharp by the Spirit. So the more the Spirit's anointing is on the Word, the easier it cuts. And we've been feeling it. I just felt such a strong presence of this in some of these subjects. There's times when the anointing is so strong on that operation that the Word of God is doing, something's being presented or something, that it's easy. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean some people won't resist it in terms of not agreeing with it. But if your heart is open and you're saying, Lord, I just want the truth, when the Word of God, when that blade is wetted by the Spirit, it cuts so easy. If you're just wanting the truth, it'll cut so easy. Oh, that's it. I see that. Mm-hmm. And you rightly divide the word of truth. It cuts right between what's right and what's wrong. Puts things in the right categories. Gets you to understand it better. We need to put conversion, Holy Spirit baptism, and perfection. And I'm paralleling that with fire baptism. We need to put conversion, spirit baptism, and perfection in their proper categories. Those are different categories. Conversion brings you into a covenant relationship with the Lord. If it's not a covenant relationship at conversion, what kind of relationship is it? God's relationships with His people are covenant relationships. He doesn't have other forms of relationship. that's something less than a covenant. If God enters into a relationship with you, it's based on a covenant. There's always a covenant. Sometimes there's elements of the covenant that are unilateral. Now, this is where not everyone agrees on this, but this to me is the only thing you can conclude from the Scripture. There's some covenants that are unilateral. I'm going to use the least controversial of all. The covenant that God gave Noah, what sometimes people refer to as the Noahic covenant, when he gave him that promise about the rainbow and how there'd never be a flood like this that would destroy the earth with water again, you know. That covenant was unilateral. God didn't say, if people don't get this bad again, there'll never be a flood. Or as long as you stay in relationship with me, there'll never be a flood. He just flat out said there's never going to be a flood. He knew there was going to be a lot more evil, but he wasn't going to use that mechanism again. So God made a unilateral. Unilateral just means one person is the individual that is behind it, that's bringing it about. So he made a unilateral covenant. Some people come to the conclusion that some of the other covenants are unilateral when they're not unilateral. And it's so easy to prove they're not unilateral. It's hard for me to understand why people keep calling them that. I hear people all the time say the Abrahamic covenant is unilateral. Well, then God should not have at any point given Abraham any requirements. Because if it's unilateral, that means it's all on God. You don't have to do anything. That's what unilateral means. So better be careful with that word. It's not unilateral. When God offered a relationship to Abraham, he asked him for something. He said, I want you to leave everything behind and I want you to go to this new land. Now, Abraham had to do that. What do you think would happen if Abraham had said, nope, not doing it. I'm comfortable here in the area of the Chaldees and don't want to leave all my family and the culture. And by the way, he was leaving the culture at that time in the ancient world was one of the most advanced cultures of that day. So he was leaving behind a very advanced culture for what we might think of as a third world country. It'd be like going from a first world country in their day, of course, to a third world country where you've never been before. You don't know what kind of dangers there might be there. You don't know what kind of problems you might encounter. There's a reason why God did that. It comes right down to this issue of faith in this subject, because that takes faith to go somewhere that could be dangerous, to leave behind civilization for what is the frontier, so to speak. That takes some faith. When God's telling you, I want you to do this, and he gradually gave Abraham promises along the way, especially after he gets to Canaan, then he started to really make some promises. But Abraham had to make some choices, and if he didn't make those choices, he would not have been in covenant relationship with God. Later, he asked Abraham to begin the rite of circumcision, and he told him this is now a requirement. If that covenant was unilateral, then Abraham could have just said, thanks, Lord, but I don't feel like doing that, so I know you'll take care of me no matter what, even if I don't get circumcised. You'll take care of it because this is a unilateral covenant. It wasn't a unilateral covenant. There are parts of the covenant that you might call unilateral, but they're really not even unilateral. I heard a minister here just the other day, listen to this minister talking on the book of Leviticus, and he got to the end and was talking about covenants, and he started talking about how Abraham's covenant was unilateral. Maybe that's why it's on my mind. And he was saying that that's why Israel will be restored. To a degree, I agree, but it's not as unilateral as you think. The promise that Israel is going to be a nation is unilateral, but it's not unilateral for any individual Israelites. Because a lot of them died and bleached their bones and they're gone. And they rejected God's will and their outside covenant relationship with it. So it wasn't unilateral for all Israelites. It's just there's going to be a corporate nation. My point of talking about the covenants is God made a covenant with Abraham all the way back in the 12th chapter of Genesis. And then again reiterated in different forms, added requirements to it, added requirements sometimes years later to it. Some of those requirements were pretty serious requirements. We talked about this before, but maybe I'll come back to it and look at it in a tiny bit more detail. But one of the requirements was that act of circumcision, and I'm not going to look at that in detail other than Joshua 5 and the fact that they were not circumcised throughout the wilderness period, some I talked about earlier. And yet, they were still God's people. And that was a requirement of covenant relationship they were not keeping, and yet they still came out of the wilderness and they still crossed the Jordan. And then they stopped. And before they could finish the work of conquering the land, they had to go through that operation. We'll come back to some of that. But the point is that God made covenant with Abraham. And the covenant was based on a decision that each one of them made. God made a decision to make a covenant. Abraham made a decision to accept it and accept the requirements. He didn't give him any power. He just gave him the word. By power, I mean, he didn't say, Abraham, you know what? I know you're not strong enough or confident enough to leave the the Chaldees behind, but I'll give you a boost. I'll let my spirit touch you in some way that'll give you a boost to do it. Abraham had to use the strength he had to get it done. They had to do a lot of things without the kind of power source we have. We have the power source, the Holy Spirit. Those men and women were doing mighty deeds without that power source. They might have felt the spirit, but they weren't filled with it. That's the key difference between the old and the new. In the old, you could feel the Spirit. It came upon them different times. It rushed through them in terms of words coming forth from the prophets and other things. Sometimes it'll even say filled, but it means filled like running through you filled. It's not baptism. But they still were under the covenant. Two things struck me here when I got these questions. One of them was the fact that Israel was called God's son. This is important because we're talking about what makes someone alive to God. Israel was called God's son as a nation even before they came to Mount Sinai. The Jews consider Mount Sinai the place at which Israel was born as a nation. They associate the giving of the law at Mount Sinai with Israel being brought to birth as a nation. I happen to agree with them, by the way, with the rabbis who believe that, that it was at Mount Sinai that Israel was formally made a nation. That's right around the time of the Feast of Pentecost, you realize. And this is an interesting study. It takes jumping around some verses. You've got to follow the train of chronology through the book of Exodus. But you'll find out that they celebrated the Passover. They left Egypt that night. The time period it took for them to get to Egypt to Mount Sinai was just a couple days before when the day of Pentecost would fall. And then God stopped and he said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. He didn't say it quite that casually. But he said, here's what you're going to do. Everybody is going to set aside everything and sanctify yourselves because in a couple of days I'm descending on Mount Sinai, which means that they got there right before the day of Pentecost and then God made them wait till the day of Pentecost. They weren't yet celebrating that as a feast yet till they got in the land because there wasn't a harvest offer up, you know, that was one of the harvest feasts. So they didn't celebrate it at Mount Sinai, but God was celebrating it at Mount Sinai even before they had a harvest. God waited till right at the day of Pentecost, and then he descended on Mount Sinai. And you know the connections that that has with the day of Pentecost and Acts 2. Not only are they both the day of Pentecost, but you realize that the rejection of God's descent on Sinai, which it was a rejection of that, because when Moses was up on Sinai, they saw God's power come down on that mountain. They knew something was going on up there. The mountain was shaking. Smoke was coming up off the mountain. There's no volcanoes over there either. So these scientists that are always trying to look for natural causes, it was the power of the Almighty God to descend on that mountain. They knew something was going on, and they still got tired of waiting for Moses and had Aaron create a golden calf and other acts of rebellion that ended up resulting in how many people being killed under God's judgment? There's an exact number. How many? 3,000. Three three thousand. Thank you. I heard that from several places. Stereo. I like stereo when I ask a question. You hear it from all sides. 3,000 men lost their lives when God descended on Mount Sinai and they chose to reject what God was doing on that mountain. When God descended on Mount Zion in the second chapter of Acts, I mean the church, how many people had their lives saved that day? 3,000? 3,000? Hmm. Pretty interesting parallel, isn't it? I know you know that. Brother Moore's taught it many times. Mm-hmm. But that indelibly links those two points. Mm-hmm. The descent on Mount Sinai that brought Israel to birth as a nation. The descent on Mount Zion that brought the church effectively, formally, to birth as a church. Now, want you think about this, this is important. It's a little deeper. But the argument that I'm answering, which I've been answering for some weeks now, we just keep getting more questions on it and keep touching on different points. And maybe that's good. Maybe we can comprehensively put an end to the questions. I don't mean no more questions, but any debate about it. That would be wonderful. I'd like every subject we have, we have question on among us. We could put an end to the debate. Now we know the answer. There's no debating that anymore. And if we get that truth, we ought to settle it in our hearts. Even if everybody hasn't seen that, you ought to say, now I see it. I can see it. Now I want you to think about this. The argument is that you are not really a living child of God until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. But I've already told you there's a difference between begotten and born, and we're begotten by the Word, and someone's begotten is alive. We talked about the natural creation of God, that a baby in the womb is alive before it's born. It's a living thing in that womb, and it's just not a thing either. It's a living little boy or girl in that womb. Got to see Brother Alex, who I sometimes call Elijah, though he likes it, I guess, so bless his heart, and Sister TNT last night. Got to see their new home, and we had a good prayer going through their home. Brother Dan and Sister Rita were there, and Alex and TNT, and they were talking about their little baby, a little boy that she's going to have. Bree, one of you is going to win that race. <laughs> you all are days apart for your due dates. One of you all is going to win the race. <laughs> May 15th and May 18th are the two due dates, aren't they? 13th, okay, five days apart. 13th, and I think Tanteens is the 18th. There's life right now in the womb of those dear ladies. There's a child there. That's not just some piece of organic material that just can be removed and it isn't taking life. There's a child there. That child is alive. It hasn't been born yet, but it's alive. It's alive because it's been begotten. Isn't that simple? And I said here earlier, God's the one that made that process. So if you want to understand how God sees life, he sees life in those stages. So you cannot argue with me. Nobody in here is doing it, by the way. But you can't argue with me that you don't have life in you by the seed of the word before you're filled with the Holy Ghost. You are alive to God by the implantation of that seed that begets you. Now, coming back, I said this is a little deeper approach to this. You have to think this through, but let's think through these parallels again. You have Mount Sinai. That's where God's spirit and power descended on that mountain. And it became, right at the day of Pentecost, the very first Pentecost, by the way, ever in history. And it became the moment of Israel's birth as a nation. But at least twice. This is so simple. I don't think most people have even connected the dots at this because they're not looking for this. They're looking for something else, Jim. That's the problem. At least twice before they ever got to Mount Sinai, while they were still in Egypt, God referred to Israel as his son. So if it took him to sin on Mount Sinai, making them a nation, Exodus 4.22, read it out. God shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Hmm. Israel is my son. Thank you for bringing that up because that adds something else that's really powerful my firstborn god hadn't even descended on sinai yet now remember sinai is the parallel with the day of pentecost we just proved that really simply didn't we you can prove it chronologically because it's the first pentecost of the old testament and the first pentecost the new testament is in acts 2. by the way i'm going to come back to this if i have time but the new testament was already in effect before the day of pentecost what starts the new testament into effect is the blood it's the blood well, maybe it really didn't begin until the resurrection because that's when God showed his approval. But let me ask you a question that's really simple. Did God know that Jesus had finished what God expected him to finish and did it right at the moment Jesus died? Or did he need to wait three days to figure out if it had been done? No, no. You know what the resurrection was for? It was not for God to say, now at this moment, I'm approving what my son did. You know he approved what his son did in a couple different ways before that. You realize that as Jesus was dying, the veil of that temple was rent from top to bottom. That was God telling them, my son has just broken through the veil. Amen. Amen. It was done at that point. Three days later when Jesus rose from the dead, it was not God saying, well, I've thought about this and I'm now saying yes, he accomplished it. No, that was for us. Yeah. Right. That was for us to know He had accomplished it. Because as far as man was concerned, he was still dead in the grave and maybe the whole thing was over. God did that for us. He already knew His Son had done it. Yes, the moment Jesus cried out, Tet-elesti, which is the phrase that He said on the cross, if He said it in Greek, I think He probably said it in Aramaic or Hebrew, but it's written out in the New Testament. tet is the word, tet-elesti. It is finished. The moment Jesus said it is finished, it really was finished. He did what he was sent to do. At that moment, he broke through that veil and it was done. It was accomplished. The resurrection was just God's way of letting us know. Yes, it was accomplished and I want you all to have a witness to it. So, what was done was done on the cross. Notice says he nailed the carnal ordinances of the law to the cross. It was at the cross that that shift between covenants occurred. The very fact that he said he nailed the carnal ordinance of the law to it tells you that the cross was that point at which one covenant ended and another covenant began because otherwise those ordinances would be still continuing. But he nailed them into the cross and he moved it on into a new covenant. Now, nobody could enter into that covenant until after he rose from the dead and interacted with them because they wouldn't have known what to do to enter into it. They wouldn't have even had the faith to know he was alive. And nobody could have the power to fulfill all the requirements of that covenant until they're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the key point about the Holy Spirit. You cannot fulfill all the requirements of the covenant without the Holy Spirit. But it isn't the Holy Spirit that puts you in the covenant. It's the Holy Spirit that keeps you in the covenant and brings you to the fulfillment of the purpose of the covenant. And I probably will come back to that. I don't want to forget this point that struck me about these two mountains. Mount Zion, and that's why Paul was making the contrast he was making in Hebrews 12, when he said, you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest, sound of a trumpet and a voice and words. So fearful, not only were the Israelites scared to death, but it said a Moses exceedingly feared and quaked. The very man that God was speaking with and that was his representative was terrified by what was happening at that mountain. You can get the impression if you're not careful that what they're saying is that was more intense. Oh, it burned with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest and sound of a trumpet. And, oh, it was so much more intense than this mountain. No, no. It's saying as intense as that was, Mount Zion is greater yet, more powerful yet than what Mount Sinai was. So there's a comparison being made. But back to this point of these two Pentecosts, where the Jim brought up at a very important point. That's Exodus 4.22, maybe, yes. when it says, not only is Israel my son, he's my firstborn. How did Israel become God's firstborn son? This is before Sinai. He made promises to Abraham, didn't he? He said, your seed's going to be a nation, a great, mighty nation. God's word is all it took. God's word, through God's covenant, that declared that Israel was his son. Israel was his son and even his firstborn son, even before he formally made them a nation at Mount Sinai, which is the parallel with the day of Pentecost. So if you're following where I'm going, if Israel could be God's son before Mount Sinai, then you could also be begotten by God and considered in that type of a role before the day of Pentecost because those are the parallels. So Israel was God's son even before God formally made him a nation. And you and I can be the begotten children of God if the word of God takes root in our heart even before we're baptized in the Holy Spirit which is the parallel with those two mountains. Mount Sinai was a picture of the formal placement of Israel as the people of God. But God had already chosen them to be that people. And it was by His covenant, through His word, that that occurred. And that's what happens under the new covenant as well. It's through the covenant that begins with blood. There had to be a covenant that God made, and each one of those covenants was ratified with blood. There was blood of those animals. It was part of that process they went through. There were sacrifices Abraham was offering to show, Lord, I want to be in a covenant relationship with you. Those blood sacrifices have been going on long before that God entered into a covenant with Abraham. And by the way, the scripture says, not only in Genesis 9, I guess it is, after Noah came down off the ark, but it says it in the law as well, given at Mount Sinai, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. That has layers to it. On the most natural and simplistic layer, it means that the blood that's in you is your life. You lose your blood, you lose your life. If you want to oversimplify, forgive me, Brother Isaiah, if you want to extremely oversimplify the medical nature of it, but if we start talking about the nature of the blood, we'll be here for a long time because there's some incredibly rich and deep things behind blood and how blood works and so on. But the life of the flesh is in the blood. That is true naturally, and that is what was being talked about when he told Noah. He said, don't eat the animal with the blood thereof, because the life of the flesh is in the blood. But he also said that when you kill a man, guilt comes upon you, because the life, you shed his blood, you shed a man's blood. Now you're guilty of destroying his life, because the life of the flesh is in the blood. But there's a deeper element to that as well. Why do you think God kept requiring them to offer sacrifices that required the shedding of blood? This ties directly, to the issue of covenant. Because when the blood is shed, it gives you life if you were under a sentence of death. So when the blood of an animal was shed, and maybe you were under God's judgment, maybe potentially you were going to die under God's judgment, when the blood was shed, there was life even for you in the blood. It's why when the blood of Jesus is shed, there's life for us in the blood of Jesus. I believe that when the blood of Jesus is applied, it gives you life. Because you were dead in trespasses and sins up until that point. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll get to that verse too. I don't know. But Ephesians talking about being dead in trespasses and sins. I've heard people try to say, well, you're dead in trespasses and sins until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not at all the context of that language. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 2, actually the one I was thinking of. Thank you, Sister Janet. You actually got me closer to where my brain was at than I did. Here's this word we were talking about last time. You at he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. At what point were you quickened? When you gave your life to the Lord, when you had a conversion experience, and in faith and repentance you turned to the Lord, were you still dead in trespasses and sins? At that moment, at least, were you still dead? Well, let's take it forward to the next step, Holy Spirit baptism. When you were filled with the Holy Spirit, were you still dead in trespasses and sins? See, either way, if your argument is, well, I still had a carnal nature, you still had a carnal nature after you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I think most of us in the building tonight, except maybe some of the youngest, have the Holy Spirit. We've been baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. But we're still dealing with the carnal nature, aren't we? So if what you think being dead in trespasses and sins represents is still having a carnal nature, that doesn't work with either one, does it? That has to mean you were under God's judgment because of your trespasses and sins, and to God you were dead. You might have been walking around in a biologically living body, but spiritually to God, you were dead because you were under his judgment and outside relationship with him. But when you turned to him in faith and repentance, you were quickened, made alive, and no longer dead in trespassing and sins. Now, you can go back to being dead again if you're not careful in terms of your state. You can go back to living in that kind of a way. That's what Romans 6 is talking about all throughout that chapter. Talking about, we're not going back. We're not trying to go back. We need to be living higher and higher. You cannot argue that because grace is abounding, you can live however you want. Or there's no penalty because you've had your past sins forgiven that there's no penalty for any other sin that you might do. There is a penalty. If you're the servant of sin, Romans 6 says, if you're the servant of sin, you're going to die. So there's a process that has to occur as part of the covenant, but the entry point to the covenant all through the Old Testament, the entry point to a covenant relationship with God was faith and repentance, and it was based on blood. So it's by faith through repentance that the blood of Christ is applied to us and what brings us into the covenant. You begin to enter into the covenant. I said here the other week, this is another thing I got some questions on just to clarify. You enter the path of life through the door of faith. Before you even receive the Holy Spirit, you've entered the path. You cannot finish the path without the Holy Spirit. You will not have the strength or energy. You won't even have enough light to see far enough to stay on the path. See, that's why I said the Holy Spirit gives you insight and empowerment. Insight is light. Empowerment is the strength. Once you get on the path, there's a little light, even in the Old Testament. That passage you could use in multiple ways. Where He said, a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Well, you have enough light to keep walking. In the Old Testament, they had enough light to just keep walking. They couldn't see far enough ahead. One time, God gave them a blast of light. If You know what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about what happened. There's Mount Sinai. When he said Moses came down from Mount Sinai with his face uncovered and he was glowing so brightly, having been in the presence of God, as strange as that sounds to us, that they couldn't stand to look on him. It terrified them. And so Moses had to put a veil over his face until that glow faded because it was so terrifying to them. That was God letting them see the end of that covenant. That wasn't the beginning. That was the end. He was letting them know, this is where this is all headed. When I'm done with you, this is the kind of being you're going to be. You'll be transfigured just like Jesus was in terms of spiritual life. He was showing them the end of the covenant. But once you get into that path, once you go through the door of faith and you're on the path, that is the path of life. It leads to eternal life. But if you're on the path, you've got the promise of life. So once you walk through the door of faith, you're on the track that as long as you stay, this is the key, as long as you stay on the path, you will have a resurrection. If you finish the path, you'll have a first resurrection. If you die on the path with your face towards Jerusalem, if you die with your face towards Jerusalem, you fall facing Jerusalem, you know, you'll have a resurrection as long as you're still on the path. That is where the life is at, is on the path. Eternal life is at the end of the path, but the whole path is alive. It's a living way. It's the true and living way, isn't it? And if you're in the living way, there's life in that way. Even before you get to the end, there's life. Because once you get on the track, this is what I said earlier, God intends you to finish your race. He doesn't start you in the race knowing you can't finish it. He is not going to subvert a man and his cause, to use that statement in lamentations. Meaning he's just going to set you up to fail. Well, I gave you an opportunity, but I knew you weren't going to be able to get the Holy Spirit because nobody in your circle had any exposure with it. You never were in a Pentecostal church. You died in a, we won't name a denomination, but you died in a so-and-so church, you definitely had a genuine conversion experience, but you died outside of ever having had exposure or real genuine experience with a Pentecostal experience, so you're just done. Mm-hmm. Of course not. Mm-hmm. You were given life by that entry point into the way of life. And God will not approve subverting a man in his cause, like there in Lamentations 3.36. He's not tricking you. He's offering you life. Yes, yes. And if you die a moment after you accept it, you're going to have life. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, he'd be deceiving you. If he offers you life, and isn't that what we're offering people when they're preaching the gospel to them? When we're preaching the gospel, we're making an evangelistic appeal. Give your heart to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Before anyone can ever even be filled with the Holy Spirit, we're making an evangelistic appeal. Give your heart to the Lord. Come on now, repent of your sins. Have faith in God. Give your heart to the Lord. If you give your heart to the Lord with genuine faith and repentance and fall over dead one second later, you've got the hope of life. Praise His holy name. That's the hope of the gospel. It's the gospel that has hope. Yes, the Holy Spirit adds to that in a mighty way. But the gospel is where the hope is at. It's the Word. It's that seed that has the life. The seed carries the life. And if the seed is implanted in you, the life is implanted in you. Praise His mighty name. And that will give you life. Now it won't give you a first resurrection. You've got to go on to perfection that first resurrection. But the same thing, and I said here multiple times, forgive me for reiterating it, but the same thing that gave life to the Old Testament saints where they fell down dead and knew they were going to live again. The same thing that had Job crying out, Amen. I know that one day my Redeemer's going to live and I'm going to stand in the latter day on the earth and I'm going to see him with my own eyes. I know it. He had faith and his faith will raise him out of that grave. Amen. Daniel could say the same thing. And other as well. I know I'm going to live again. David could say about his little boy that died. I'll see you again, son. There's life in the word of God. There's life. And this is the subject that's on my mind tonight because of the questions I've been getting. I don't think I'm getting very far into it, unfortunately. The questions I've got, I've got a couple questions on my notebook that I've been getting that I listed out there. I don't even know if I've even looked at them yet. So that's unfortunate because now I've got more to talk about on this, but the blood is where the life is at. That's where life begins. The blood is applied to you and you are in a state of life to God. The Israelites on the night of the Passover were in a state of life in God's eyes. They were alive, but the firstborn of Egypt were dead. They lived, didn't they? Yes. They didn't die that night. They lived. But they had to do something after that if they were going to go on. They had to be baptized in Corinthians 10, isn't it? Into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. There was a whole process they had to go through that wasn't finished, but they were alive before that process. And as I said, they were called God's son before they even made it to Mount Sinai, before the day of Pentecost even occurred, they were called God's son. So you can be a child of God by faith. That's the point. You can be a child of God by faith. Don't you realize that's exactly what was said about Abraham? And it said, we're Abraham's children by faith. In fact, when Jesus was talking to some of the ones who he called children of the devil, he told them exactly what it would take to be a child of Abraham. They said, we're not children of the devil, we're Abraham's seed. He said, you would be Abraham's children if you had Abraham's spirit. If you had the attitude of Abraham, if you had the character of Abraham, other things. Because Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And I think if Abraham had been alive, he would have shouted for glory to Jesus walking the earth. The children of Abraham, by faith... And you realize the Gentiles, when they come in first through a conversion experience, like everyone comes in, were the children of Abraham by faith, which means they were spiritual children by faith. You're a child of God by faith. But in order for you to grow up, you're going to have to get the Holy Ghost because you can't grow past a certain level without the Holy Spirit. You'll never be a fully developed son. There's another subject that we still haven't got into in depth, but it's really a good subject, and I would advise you to study it out. It might really instigate some good questions. Study out the times that God refers to people as his son or sons, and look and see if there's different qualifications at different times. Not every time God calls somebody a son does he mean the same level. The very last one that I can think of in the Bible in Revelation where he says, he that overcometh, I'll be his God and he'll be my son. Well, surely we don't think you're not a son of God until you overcome. This is an example, by the way, of the problem. I can show you the problem in a nutshell real easy with that example. If we cherry pick scriptures, that is where we'll get ourselves in trouble. If you don't take everything the Bible says, You you rest it to your own destruction. You cannot rightly divide the word of truth if you don't have all of it to rightly divide. If you only got some of it, you don't have enough, you might say it all says this, but you didn't even take the other parts that say that. So you've got to have enough of it to rightly divide it. Here's an example of that. That last statement, Sister Janet, is that you back there? You're on fire. She's really keeping up with my scriptures here tonight. She's getting some ahead of me, I think. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I'll be his God and he shall be my son. If somebody cherry picked that out, you know what you'd have to conclude? Nobody's a son of God until they overcome. Mm. If that's the only scripture you had, wouldn't that be what you'd conclude? That's all you had. If we look at Revelation 2 and 3, you see those seven different statements about he that overcometh and it tells you things that someone that overcomes will get. This is the eighth. There's not just seven, there's eight times in Revelation that it says he that overcometh and tells you the qualities. What a strange statement. He that overcometh, he shall be my son. Let's imagine for a minute that we have no other statement in the scripture because we're just, forgive me, we're not studious enough or knowledgeable enough to know there's any others. So we have cherry picked that one out or somebody has told us it's been a legacy we've had passed down. Somebody's told us, here's the scripture, this is the answer and bless the Lord, brother so-and-so told me that I don't even need to look in the Bible. And you miss all those other scriptures because you find that scripture and it says, he that overcometh. And you say, well, here's the teaching now. Nobody's the son of God till they overcome. Well, then what do you do with all the Scriptures that called people sons of God that weren't yet overcomers? Right. What do you do with Scriptures about being born again? When you're born again, are you a son of God or not? Or do you have to wait till you overcome? See, this is where we tangle ourselves up, right. is you pick out what you want. So somebody picks out some Scriptures and says, you've got to be born of the Spirit, brother. You're not a son of God till you're born of the Spirit. It is true. It talks about being born of the Spirit, making you a son of God. But it also talks about overcoming, making you a son of God. So those are different levels of sonship. Hmm. I said, there's no argument about the fact that if you're begotten and in the womb, you're somebody's child. If you're a boy, you're their son. When I found out, it's one of the only times I busted out crying in a doctor's office, though I felt like crying a few times the last few years, (laughs) but for different reasons entirely. I mean, totally different reasons. No, that's not true. There's a few times I felt like crying in the last year or two when they said, no cancer, no cancer, no cancer. That'd make me almost feel like crying. A few times I felt like crying when they told me about the cancer. That's a different feeling. But before any of that, when I found out I had a son, all the family was in the room at the time when they told us, and all of them still give me a hard time about it. They said, oh, I've never seen you get that emotional. Now, I wasn't jumping around or anything, but tears uncontrollably started falling. I was happy to have a son, Elijah. I was so glad to have a little boy. Not that I didn't love my little girls. I love them dearly. But I was feeling it, as they say. I found out I was going to have a son. Look, he was my son when they did the ultrasound. He was my son before that. But I had a son. From my own knowledge, I had a son. At the moment they announced, we just did the ultrasound. You've got a little boy. I had a son. He was my son right then, wasn't he? He hadn't been born yet, but he was my son. And if he had been born and we were under the old covenant, he required that he be circumcised on the eighth day and he died three days later. He's still my son. son. And like David's son, I'm still going to see him again because I was in a covenant relationship with God. And that covenant relationship covered my son. That's a precious promise. Thank God for that. Now, where was I going? Yes, cherry pick. That's the key. Here's what happens when we cherry pick. Did you have something, Brother Moore? Read it out. Something we've had through the years so important. Yeah, you can read it. You can read it. That was the original wording. The Moore's got this statement, how to interpret the Bible. It shall greatly help you to understand Scripture. I'm going to modernize the vowels. If you mark not only what is spoken or written. Well, this is definitely old. W-R-Y-T-T-E-N. This is some old English right here. But of whom and to whom and what words and at what time, where, to what intent, with what circumstance, considering what goes before and what follows. That is absolutely right. Thank you. That'll keep you from cherry picking. That'll keep you from cherry picking. The problem with cherry picking, as I said, is you can find scriptures that talk about the necessity of getting the Holy Spirit to be born again. You sure can. But I've been giving you all kinds of evidence that there's life in the Word. And that when you're begotten by the seed of the Word, there's life. And now I just gave you a scripture that makes it tougher on the whole other side. That you may not be a son until you overcome. And by the way, that is true. You are a son, but you go to Romans 8 and you're going to see, there's another pastor we'll have to go to at some point. You go to Romans 8, you're going to see, if you're really going to be a son of God, you've got to live and walk in the Spirit. If you're not led by the Spirit, you're not a son of God. Wait a second now, I thought we were sons of God at the moment we were filled with the Holy Ghost. So what if you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, but you don't let the Spirit lead you? You're not a son. So there's stages of sonship. It doesn't begin with you being filled with the Holy Spirit. It begins with the Word of God being implanted in your heart. Mm -hmm. Then you get to a different stage of sonship when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Once you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not over then. You've got to live and walk in the Spirit. And as you live and walk in the Spirit, your level of sonship rises, just like going through a maturing process. You start as a baby. You become an adolescent, you know, a child, a toddler. You become an adolescent, juvenile, on into spiritual adulthood. And finally, when you're a fully matured, that's why I don't have any problem. I think it's misleading, but I don't have any problem when people want to argue, which some Christians do. Well, words like teleos. Teleos is the Greek word for perfect. They just mean mature. mm -hmm. I think it surprised one of them because we were talking about the doctrine of perfection and they said, look, here's some examples of the Greek scholars that say it just means mature. I said, all right, let's assume for a minute it means mature. Who is the standard of what mature is? Well, God is the ultimate for sure. That was you, Andy? God is the ultimate standard. So when you say it means mature, mature based on what standard of maturity? I can give you a real simple one. There is the exact standard of maturity. In fact, it even says it like this. It says that the purpose of some of the things that Christ gave to the church, which, by the way, is tied right to this point of the Holy Spirit, the purpose of him leading captivity captive and giving gifts to men, then he lists the five offices of ministry, is for the perfecting of the saints, for the full maturing of the saints, if someone wants to interpret it that way, until we come into a perfect man, just a mature man, all right, what level of maturity? She's about to tell you. Unto this is the level of maturity, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Which means, if you want to argue nobody in here is doing it, but if you want to argue with me, teleos, some of the other words that are used for perfection, just means maturity. Fine. Just to find the right maturity, and we're still saying the same thing. Because Jesus' maturity is perfection. So there isn't any debating about that. If you want to say, be you mature as God is mature, Matthew 5, well, it didn't mean be perfect as God is perfect. It means be mature as God is mature. How mature is God? Is he perfect in his maturity? Not much to debate then, is there? You cannot escape the doctrine of perfection by trying to argue the Greek word means maturity because the standard of maturity is perfect. So that's pretty simple, isn't it? We do have to have this great power working in our life to be able to go on to perfection. But that's not the power that brings us into a covenant relationship with the Lord. What brings us into covenant relationship with the Lord are the ingredients of the Word and the response to the Word. And in many cases, the blood that I started talking about. I haven't got into any depth. But the blood of Jesus is a critical ingredient that moves us forward in terms of that stage of salvation you've got to have the blood. That's why I think we've got to be careful because every stage of what God does is mighty. There's none that are just not as good. What level of power did it take to break the chains you had to your past life? The application of the blood is a powerful thing. I was thinking of that when you were talking, Brother Jim, we were talking here lately about Resurrection Sunday and sometimes our focus and what kind of thoughts are on our mind because of that season, that time of the year and the necessity. There's always a necessity, especially at times of the year like that where we have a real focus on that particular subject. I actually heard a minister one time say, I know it's the time of the Passover and Resurrection Sunday, but we don't need to preach on that just because that time of year, I just talk about whatever's going on. And I thought, no, no, you're missing the point. God set up the seasons for a reason. We ought to pay attention to where we're at in that clock, in that timetable, in that calendar. Those feasts were all very strategic. And the feast of the Passover falls right at the time and first fruits falls right at the time of the resurrection. That is very strategic, and we need to have a tremendous focus. And I do personally think that focus needs to be driven by the music that we choose and the message. There needs to be music to enhance that, and there needs to be a message. We always have to have a message at times like that. I was told the folks in Mansfield every time we got up to Resurrection Sunday, I want you to have as many songs as you can play. There's nothing more exciting than playing songs about the resurrection. But you can almost be sure I'm going to preach a message because I can't not preach a message. I can't not say something. How can you not say something when you're talking about what Jesus did? That's what I'm getting at with this. What makes this so powerful? We've got a great, great appreciation of every stage of what God does. But I don't think any are lower than the others. What Jesus did on the cross broke something. He made a change on that cross that has never gone back, never reversed. And if you come to the cross, something will happen that will allow you to receive the Holy Spirit. It's more powerful in some ways because you couldn't even get the Holy Spirit if that didn't happen first. A mighty change occurs at the cross if it's a genuine conversion experience. We preach a lot about going on to perfection, and rightly so, because that's the highest target we're aiming for. But we can't miss the other pieces that each have great power. We preach about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank the God of heaven for that. That is the source of power to let you go on to perfection. That'll take you up to a different level of sonship. A different level of sonship. It's not that you weren't a child of God. You were a child of God by faith. But He's just given you the strength now to grow as a child of God. you got to get outside the womb before you can grow. You reach a place in the womb where you're going to have to exit the womb and take in breath. And get your own independent breath. That's what happens when you receive the Holy Spirit. You're alive in the womb, but you got to come out, take in breath. Take in a big, deep breath of the Spirit of God. And then get the strength, you know. It's like getting a second wind where you run out of your wind and then you, I can run a little further. You keep breathing in the Spirit of God and you'll just keep running that race until you come to the end of the race. But the beginning point is not when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The beginning point is conversion. And conversion should be a mighty work of mercy and grace. Mm -hmm. It's nothing small. It's not just some casual thing. I mean, something needs a break in you for you to be truly converted. It isn't just a casual, I'll just come up to the altar. In fact, I remember as a child... I can remember many times coming up to the altars and kneeling down at the altar and praying. And I was looking for a feeling that something had changed, not just words. In other words, that I said words. You do have to say some words. You got to talk to the Lord. You got to take words and turn to the Lord. But your words, when they connect with God's heart, because they're genuine, God's word will penetrate your heart, whether you like it or not. And you may or may not respond well to it, just like we see in the book of Acts, where they were pierced to the heart on the day of Pentecost, and they said, tell us what to do. They were pierced and cut to the heart in Stephen's message, and they said, we're going to kill the guy. Very different feeling, but it's the same cutting. God can pierce to the heart, but your words can reach the heart of God too. When God's word pierces your heart, he's wanting you to turn to him, and your words, it doesn't pierce his heart in the same way, But your words can touch God's heart. And God knows whether you're genuine or not. And unless it is truly, fully genuine, I really believe, Lord, and I'm really sorry, and I'm really completely committed to You. I want to enter into a covenant with You, Lord. And those words hit the heart of God, and God responds. You'll feel something when God responds. Just like you felt something when you are filled with the Holy Ghost. Genuine conversion will change you. You will be different. You will be a child of God by faith. Mm -hmm. So then you go on and receive the Holy Spirit, and you become a child of God by spirit. And there's different layers of that. You really enter in almost like a servant to begin with. Mm -hmm. But it talks about if an individual had been a servant, and this is talking about there's different types of servants and slaves in the ancient world. Not every person called a slave or a servant was the same thing. Usually one Israelite would never put another Israelite in slavery. They weren't allowed to do that. They could put their enemies in slavery, but that was never allowed to be done to a fellow Israelite. The most you could do was make them what amounts to an indentured servant. And at the end of seven years, you were freed from that. But if you find out, and didn't we find this out? If you find out that I'd like to stay here, I'm looking around and you know what? I think I'd like to stay. Lord, I'd like to stay here. I'd like to stay among your people. Then they take an awl. This doesn't sound real pleasant. You know what an awl is? A little spike. Take an awl. They take your earlobe and pin it up to the door. Then they put that awl there. This is God's way of piercing ears, all right? Put your ear up to the door. Take an awl and thrust it through your ear into the door. And the symbol of that is, I am making a permanent covenant that I want to be a part of this house. I want to be a servant forever. I want to stay here. You notice where the all is being driven. Where? What part of your body? Hmm. Not the mouth? No, that's a little later. That's a little later. The mouth gets dealt with with Holy Spirit baptism. It's the ear. You know why? Because that's where you first hear the word. You're committing to what you've heard. I've heard the word of God, and I'm going to commit myself to that. It's through the preaching of the Word, see? And then you put your ear to the door. That's the door of faith. And you say, nail me to the door, Lord. I don't ever want to leave. And your faith is anchored to the door of faith by the Word of the living God. And you're pinned to the door. And then you're a permanent inhabitant of the house. And eventually you can even go on to higher stages of relationship in that house, which I guess we'll have to save for another time because I never really got much into it. It's already getting past nine o'clock. You see how much meat there is in this subject. The husband sanctified by the yes, Paul talked about the unbelieving husband being sanctified by the wife. Vice versa would be true if you've got an unbelieving wife. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. Holy. If somebody is holy in God's eyes, there's another thing you could put on your list. Just study it out. Just like a covenant. If you're in a covenant with God, you've got the hope for resurrection. If God has sanctified you, what has He set you apart for? That's what holy is, is to be sanctified, to be set apart. Holiness and righteousness are very, very similar, but they're almost like two sides of a coin. Holiness is about being set apart for a special purpose, being kept in a certain way so that you can fulfill that purpose. If God sets you apart, and I'm going to finish with what I started with. This is just logic, but it's pretty strong logic, I think. If God sanctifies you when you come to Him in initial conversion, if you had faith in God, and that is where God makes you holy. You know, God was calling Israel a holy people from the beginning, not because they acted holy all the time, but because He had chosen them and set them apart as His sanctified people. If God has sanctified you and chosen you and made you holy in that way, He has a purpose for you. If you died tomorrow and hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit, did God fail? No, you'll have an opportunity in the resurrection. So when you've been set aside for that holy purpose, when you've entered into covenant, when you've had your ear nailed to the door, it's hard to stop. I just thought of another one. In the anointing and the preparation of the priests, you know the order they went through to prepare those priests. By the way, those priests are a picture of the kings and priests that the bride's going to be. So there's a process to get to that place. And you know they took blood of one of the sacrifices and they took the anointing oil and they applied the blood to the ear, to the thumb, and to the big toe. Then on top of the blood, they applied the oil to the ear, to the thumb, and to the big toe. There's the stages. First, it's the blood. Then it's the oil of the Spirit. Then you're ready to go on to be a priest. That's why you have to have the Holy Spirit to be in the first resurrection. The first resurrection is what produces those kings and priests. So that priestly calling, you have to have the blood and the oil applied if you're going to be able to go on to perfection and be a part of that priestly class to come. Let me give you one scripture. Go right ahead. Isaiah fifty-five eleven. Read it out. So shall my word go forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing <laughs> whereunto, whereunto I send it. Yes. I want you to stay there. I want you to read the rest. Andy and I were just talking about this one lately. I told Andy, and I think you feel the same way, Andy. I never stopped there. i got to read through the rest of the trees of the field, clapping their hands. I can't <laughs> stop. There. i got to read that. So hold on to it. Yeah. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. So if God's word goes out of his mouth and it goes in your ear, and you die short of having received the Holy Spirit, is his word going to return to him void or not? No. Mm-hmm. Can you stay... Been thinking this the whole time here because I'm thinking about some relatives that have been gone. Mm -hmm. It said nothing about Abraham offering a sacrifice. All it said was faith. Mm -hmm. Then, possibly, I mean, it does say that he obeyed my voice and kept my commandments and my word and my precepts and my law there in the 26th chapter, but Mm -hmm. it was just faith at that point. It started out with only faith. That's it. Yeah. That's a good point to bring up. But what Brother Jim just brought up here, and what Brother Andy said, let's tie them together. Maybe let me get out of this pulpit. I love being here. I could be in this pulpit for two more hours. I'd be just fine. But I don't know if you would at that point. (laughs) So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. Here, right here. Mm -hmm. This is God's word that went forth out of his mouth. There's a whole lot of God's word that went forth out of his mouth right here. Mm -hmm. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, which means if God's word took root in your heart, you're going to have an opportunity to go on. doesn't matter if you die tomorrow, you're going to have an opportunity to go on. If that isn't enough, it shall accomplish that which I please. It's going to accomplish its purpose. If the purpose of the word of God was to give you a relationship with God, he's going to give you every opportunity to respond to that relationship. If you've never encountered the Holy Spirit, He's going to give you a chance. If you don't encounter it in this life, you'll get a chance to encounter it in the next life. Yes. Brother John, do you have a question? Um, he was saying about the resurrection that they have to have the Holy Spirit get in the first resurrection. So what resurrection, if I just believe in, in God. When I was 21, I, I truly converted. What resurrection would I come up on? You'd come up in the last resurrection. Resurrection of the last day, the second resurrection. Oh, yeah. yep when the book of life is opened. By the way, that tells you something. Mm -hmm. It tells you people coming up in the second resurrection, there have to be people in the book of life. There's no point in opening up the book of life in the second resurrection if nobody in the second resurrection was in it. If God already knew nobody in the second resurrection is even in the book, you don't even need to open it, do you? If you open the book of life, the opening of the book of life, by the way, is what brings them up, if you want to look at it poetically. It's just like God reading out names. All right, come on, Job. Come on, Daniel, it's your time. Come on. It was a scroll, not a book like we think of it. Roll out that scroll, and you get to the point in the scroll, there's Job. That'd be one of the earliest ones. Get a little further down, Ah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Just start naming names, people coming back to life. God doesn't have to do it that way. But God does things in strange ways that we wouldn't think are necessary. He didn't have to say, let there be light, did he? He could have just thought, I want some light. But he was talking to somebody. Coming on into the rest of these verses would be a good place to close with this 55th chapter. It shall accomplish that which I please, and this is powerful what you focused on there in the end of that. It shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now, that's very formal language, but let me make it very simple for you. It will bring about the intended purpose in whatever thing I put it in. He sends it into your heart, it's going to prosper. If God's word enters into your heart, it's going to bring forth something. You're going to have life. For you shall go out with joy. This can mean a lot of things, going out with joy. it could be talking about Israel. There's a lot of feeling about that's what it is, that God's purpose for Israel. But I'm going to tell you right now, if God's word prospers in you, if you fall dead and God's word has prospered in you, you're going to go out of the grave with joy. And you'll be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. It's one of my favorite images in the whole Bible. I guess it's because I love trees, Andy. Think of the trees of the field clapping their hands. Now, doesn't mean they're going to come alive and have arms, but there is going to be such a rushing power of the Spirit of God running down through there. All of us who are trees of the field are going to be clapping our hands. All of us who are places in the earth are mountains. We're a mountain here. This is a mountain in this part of the country. This is a mountain here. This is a watchtower on Mount Zion right here in Northeast Ohio. And this mountain is going to go forth with singing. Can you imagine the voice of singing that will come up when the resurrection begins? Trees of the field clapping their hands. Instead of the thorn, will come up the fir tree, which is just to say the curse will be put away. Instead of people dying, people will be coming back to life. You may even see a hope of the resurrection in that. Instead of the thorn, you realize the curse when God laid it on this earth, he said all it can bring forth is thorns and thistles. Mm-hmm. Everything results in death. Mm-hmm. But instead of that, there'll be life. They come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar, will come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. Praise his holy name. Praise